see it. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and this morning we are tackling self-control. If you have your Bibles, I would love for you to open those to Galatians chapter 5. We have been encouraging, please bring your Bibles, please bring your Bibles, uh, set your phones away, but bring your physical uh, Bibles, mark them up, circle them, highlight them, and you guys are doing that. I just want to say thank you. It is making a difference. God is stirring a thirst and a hunger for the Word of God uh, that is unlike we've ever seen. So thank you for joining us in this. Here's the million dollar question. What is self-control? Now, if you're a parent, your version of self-control, especially if you have boys like I do, uh, might be different than if, if your kids are older. You, uh, we change a little bit as we look at life. We also might turn on the news and look at different politicians, none to be named, and wonder where is self-control. The ancient Greeks viewed self-control over all the virtues. They held it extremely high, something that we don't necessarily understand, but for them it was a very high virtue out of all the schools in Greek philosophy, the one that elevated self-control to the highest level of importance was the Stoics. Now, I don't know if you've studied the Stoics very often. I don't know if, you've, if you want to just Google them and then look at images. There's some pretty interesting images that come with the Stoics. The Stoics taught that if a man could master himself, if by sheer willpower he could gain control over his actions, over his behavior, over his thinking and responses, that he would then be perfectly free because he would have mastered himself, be unmoved by anything that could happen to him. In other words, if I can control everything I feel, everything I do, everything I think, then when I go out into this world, no matter what happens to me, I can have dominion over it because who is the master? You're looking at him. That's the, what the Stoics taught. It was this idea of, of reaching into yourself, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, working harder, thinking harder, doing better, and hanging on. It was turning yourself, in essence, into a stone, an unmovable stone, kind of like Grant Hansen after a workout, just a, just a rock. <laughs> that idea of... Self-will, self-strength is still around. You've heard it. Suck it up. Work harder. I don't want to hear it. We all have problems. Deal with it. Be stronger mentally. Be stronger emotionally. Just do it. And the list goes on and on and on. Just say no. It's not that hard. I know you're tempted, just say heart, just say no. It's this idea of grabbing some kind of inner strength so that then we can be better. This is stoic thinking, so that we can remain in control. But when the Bible calls Christians to, to this word self-control in Galatians, it's something different. When Peter says in 1 Peter 5:8, be self-controlled and alert. Keep your eyes open. Be aware of what's going on. Understand what the Spirit of God is doing in you. Be self-controlled. Be alert. This is not a, a command to simply exercise your self-control, your self-willpower. 
so that you just somehow become better. Some of you unfortunately grew up with that mindset. Whether it was given to you intentionally or unintentionally. Work harder. Have better self-control. Mind your manners. Keep your hands to yourself from a spiritual standpoint. But the fruit of the Spirit, which is self-control, is not sheer willpower. It's not about reaching down into yourself. It's not about just saying no or resisting or running away. It's not stoicism. Pastor and author Timothy Keller gives a great definition of the fruit of the Spirit of self-control. This is what he says. Self-control is the ability the Holy Spirit gives you to choose the important thing over the urgent thing. I might even do a, a parenthetical on the urgent and I would say the thing that's right in front of you. In other words, self-control is the ability the Holy Spirit gives you to say no to that luscious, beautiful, incredible thing that's right in front of you, that urgent thing, so that you can choose the important thing. The urgent thing is always, always, always gratifying the sinful nature. If you remember at the very beginning of this series, we spent a long time at the beginning of, of this passage, and it talks about this war that is literally waged every single moment, every single day on, on the sinful nature of the flesh and that which the Holy Spirit wants to grow in you. That's why you can go to God and go, hey, it's me again. I know I promised I would never look at that again, but guess what? I'm here. Sorry about that. I will never do it again. Or you lose your patience with your spouse or your kids. Or you're like me. Last week I shared with you when I fell down our stairs and a, a, fun, a, a colorful word slipped out of my mouth. It's this, it's this war that's happening in the flesh every single day. And there's not a single one of us that's immune to that. There's not a single one of us that isn't in that war. Every single one of us. And all of us have things that we can't control. Bad habits. Thoughts. Attitudes. Words. Our tongue. Our postings. Our eyes, our credit cards, your stomach. It goes on and on and on. But, but if you're a Christ follower, you aren't just any person. You are a child of the living God. You are a child of the God who created the heavens and the earth. And who has infinite power to do anything he needs. And to give you anything you need to overcome that which is in this world. That's the power. It's the, the biblical word dunamis, dunamis, dynamite. It's powerful. It's explosive. And that's available to you. You have the divine nature of the Holy Spirit that's planted within you. When you leave today, when you get in your car and you go to lunch, you go as a follower of Jesus, you go with that Holy Spirit that goes with you, that gives you power, that gives you self-control. And an essential part of that is the ability to choose the important thing 
over the urgent thing. And I know right now you're thinking where you don't have self-control. We don't have to put a list up. You already have yours. And the, the thing I want you to know this morning is it's not by your own willpower that things change. It's not you deciding today is going to be better than yesterday. You might do that today, but guess what? Tomorrow's coming. But it's only by tapping into the power of God's grace. So we're going to look at three specific areas regarding self-control. If you're taking notes, either in your notebook that you bring or in your Bibles, three areas we're looking at. The need for self-control, the power of self-control, and the context of self-control. So let's get into it. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Paul shows the church of Ephesus the power of God. And the way that he shows them the power of God is he allows them to see a former and a present. He allows them to see what used to be what is. What is the old? What is the new? This is how he do, does it. He says you were dead. He uses the phrase the way you used to live. He says you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And then he describes their behavior. He says this. He says you were gratifying the cravings of, our, of your sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. You were feeding your sinful nature. You know what that means. When you feed what you naturally respond with. You know exactly what that means when you shouldn't look at an image or you shouldn't respond to your kids or you shouldn't lie or you shouldn't cut someone off because they cut you off and you feel it welling up inside of you. You give it life. You feed it. This is exactly what Paul is describing. But you see... Bless you with self-control under the cravings of your sinful nature. In other words, the lusts of the flesh. Don't just merely think sexual. That is so short-sighted. But the lusts of the flesh, that thing that we so hunger for, this is who you are before you are saved by Jesus. You have no hope. You have no control over it. You are a victim there's nothing you can do. The sinful nature, the flesh, is the entire nature of a person in complete opposition to God. That's what Paul's describing here. The sinful nature expresses itself in a lack of control by building idols. And then it worshiped those idols instead of God. We see this all throughout the Old Testament. Now, I doubt many of you, you might, but I doubt many of you have gold calves in your family rooms. And when you leave here, you go home, you kneel before it, you pet the horns, and then you have some lunch, and you worship that idol. You go, I, idols aren't a thing of today. I get that. You might not have those idols. But here's what John Calvin describes in regards to idols. He says this, hearts are idol-making factories. Your heart is an idol-making factory. Now, I'll be honest with you. When I was growing up in the late 70s and 80s, my iPhone was not an idol. Why? 
Didn't have an idol. <laughs> Didn't have that iPhone. But I can guarantee you, if I were a teenage boy and I had been given an iPhone, guess what it would have become my idol? The iPhone. The heart changes, so does culture. What is an idol today didn't used to be yesterday. Mark Popenhagen, I think, still has his crummy TV with the spider in it. That's not an idol for him. That's like, that causes him to sin in other ways because he hates it. But if we together, we're not going to do this, but if we were to pool a bunch of money this morning and go buy him a new TV, that's like smart TV and spiderless on the screen, guess what might become an idol? The TV. John Calvin says, hearts are idol-making factories, and we know this to be true. Sin brought alienation from God, a separation from God, but it did leave us with a drive to worship. It left us with a drive to worship something. To one, it might be alcohol. To another, it might be drugs. To another one, it might be sex. To another one, it might be shopping. But he leaves us to worship, to hunger for, to thirst, to run towards something. It's how we're wired. We're made to worship. And so sinful nature finds its idols, these little gods that we can worship. So what does all of this have to do with self-control? Well, you see, the world looks at a person who's ridiculously uh, successful in sports and business and, and maybe their, their job, their very first job, and they're just crushing it. They look at, the world looks at someone who's achieved great success, and they say, wow, what a self-disciplined person. They must be such a hard worker. They're so good at what they do. And they don't realize that they didn't do a 40-hour week. They did a 120-hour week. They didn't just give some money to what they're trying to succeed at. They gave everything to that thing they're trying to succeed at. That thing that makes them wake up. That thing that we cannot set this down because if I set this down, I'm not going to be successful. If I get away from my computer, I can't answer my, my emails right away. And if I can't answer my emails right away, I'm not going to be as successful. But the world looks and goes, wow. But then the world looks at a person who worships drugs and sex and food. And the world says, oh, that person has no self-control. But the Bible, the Bible gives us a completely different view. Neither are self-controlled. Both instances are enslaved to sin. Both instances are enslaved to idols. I'm going to tell you right now, man or woman, child, if you are working 70, 80, 90 hours a week, you have an idol. If you are pouring more of your life into your work than your wife or your kids or your faith, you worship an idol. If you spend more time surfing the internet, if you spend more time shopping, if that drives you, that is your idol. And it controls you. 
And one of the best things you can do even this morning is to turn to someone who you love and to trust and go, I have a problem. Now, yeah, maybe in the world's sake, it might not be the, the, the most monumental thing, but for you it is. And so maybe you do need to turn to someone you love and go, I got to get out of this. I got to make some changes. When we follow the, the cravings of our sinful nature, that becomes the urgent, not the important. And I'm the guiltiest of them all. My boy Max is sitting here. He's not feeling all that great, so he's kicking it with us. There are times Max will say, hey, can I do such and such? And I'm doing this. And what I'm doing is very important. You know, when it hit me the most, the other day, Mighty Max came up to me and I was on my phone and he goes, hey, can I read you my favorite verse in the Bible? And I said, yeah, give me a second. Failure. That's a dad fail. And I'm still trying to like forgive myself for that. And luckily, it didn't take me long, but I'm like, oh my gosh, what's happening here? But in that moment, that was my idol. I don't even remember what I was doing. The Bible says that something becomes your idol. And the Bible tells us that all idols are spiritual dead ends, promising what only God can give. Promising only what God can provide for you. There's simply different ways to satisfy these urgent cravings of our sinful nature. And so how does this apply to your growth and self-control? This is a crucial matter of understanding this. As a Christian, your sinful nature has been broken. Your old nature, idol-making tendency, it's still there. It will still be there, Philippians says, until Jesus comes again, until his work is done in you. That old idol-making tendency is still there within your DNA. But hope for regaining self-control is available by the power of the Holy Spirit. So yeah, I told Max, hold on, give me a second. But then what did I give even more life to? I turn and I'm like, read them all. Read them all. In fact, I'm going to throw my phone away. No, I'm not going to throw that phone away. <laughs> what a crazy idea that was in the moment. But this isn't evil. Shopping's not evil. Your idols aren't necessarily evil until they become idols. That's the first step. And this brings us to our next point. It's the power of self-control. Listen, it starts with an understanding of God's grace. Look at how Paul explains this in the book of Titus. I know most of you have spent most of this week in Titus. Titus chapter 2, verse 11, it says this, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all people. It teaches us to say no 
to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live with self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. In the Bible age, no, in this present age, say no, that the Holy Spirit gives you, that power to say no allows you to live in this age controlled, upright, and godly. And how does the grace of God teach us to say no to the cravings of the sinful nature and to live self-controlled lives? That is a great question. How in the world does that happen? It's very simply, when you understand grace, things begin to change. When you understand how much it cost God to save you, things begin to change. When you understand how much he loves you and how much you are in need of grace, things begin to change. They don't begin to change just because you decided they're going to change. When you understand grace, when you experience grace, when Hunter experiences grace, something changes. And things begin to happen. It destroys the pull that they have on you and frees the love of Christ then to follow. You see, sometimes it's like us. We, we, we don't have a firm grasp on grace, so there's a backup in the system. And as soon as we can break that logjam, grace and love begin to flow. And when grace and love begin to flow, all of a sudden, self-control happens. Why? Because the Spirit of God is growing in you. What's the Spirit of God growing in you? Fruit. What kind of fruit? The fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of Brian. Amen. And you begin to change so it's not just, I got to wake up today and be better so that I don't get in trouble. So that I don't make God mad. I can promise you if you try and do that, you're always going to make God mad. The heart of grace is the good news that you are forgiven, that you are set free. That you are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. That there is a new day. And you might not have all the answers. You might have doubts. You might have struggles. You might have concerns. But, but the old goes under the water and the new comes up out of the water. That's grace. And that's how the fruit grows in us. Don't look at your kids and say you need to be more patient. Help them lean into God so that God can grow them to be patient. I can, well, let's just say this. If Sandy were to come up here, my beautiful bride Sandy, if Sandy were to come up here and one of you were to interview and say, tell us about Brian over the last 20, this, this summer will be 22 years. Tell us about Brian over the last 22 years. There might be some laughter. <laughs> but there would also be some cringing. Because I am not a good guy. Left by myself. And I have tried and tried and tried for 45 years to be who I'm supposed to be. And I could also bring in all my counselors and principals from grade school and they can let you know how that was. It was not pretty. But when, when I kind of surrendered to God, 
when it finally hit me that I can't be the, the husband and dad and brother and coworker and pastor and former cop. I can't be any of that unless the Spirit of God doesn't do something miraculous in me. And he can do it in you. It destroys that pull. Your idols will say, serve me and I'll give you peace and acceptance and security and pleasure. The Christ follower can shout back, I already have that in Christ. You can't offer me anything I don't already have. And all of the righteousness, that is the rightness, making you right in God's eyes in Jesus is yours. It's fully available to you. All of it. Not some of it, not parts of it. Not, hey, I'm going to give you a little bit and as you get better, I'm going to give you more and more. All of it is available to you. The Bible says that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All has been offered to you. You are now sons and daughter of the living king. You are a new creation. You are part of the royal priesthood. I have adopted you as a son and daughter. Everything that's available to me is now available to you. That's self-control. Because as you think about the power of grace and then you apply it to yourself, that's how self-control grows. It allows you not to be a victim of the enemy, but to fight back and be a victor. Finally, the context of self-control if you're taking notes. I don't want to freak any of you out here, so just run with me with this. I wish there was a different context for self-control. I really do. Genuinely. Not, not just from a, uh, uh, like, stand in front of you. Truly, in, in, the, in my study at home, as I'm preparing this, I, I looked for other ways of where the context of self-control is found. Truly. But the Bible is clear. The spiritual fruit of self-control grows in the context of spiritual warfare. I so wish it weren't the case. As Christ followers, we are to cultivate this fruit in the arena of the conflict with the devil who crouches behind every corner looking to steal, kill, and destroy. The Apostle Peter said it like this, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. When you're at home and no one's around and you're tempted, when you're in a crowd of people, when you're on the 25 and you're driving, when you're at work and you have a super annoying coworker, when you're tempted in that way to respond a certain way or have a criticism or a thought mindset about someone or to criticize something that you see on the news, in that moment, in that exact moment that you're tempted to respond that way that is not of God, that's the war. That's the, that's the roaring lion that's evil, that's crouching behind every corner, always wanting more and more, looking to kill and steal and destroy you. 
And when the Holy Spirit starts to lead you into greater self-control in matters of godliness, the devil can, will do all he can to oppose you. You say, well, man, I don't get it, man. I, I gave my life to Jesus. I told Hunter this the other day. I said, hey, there's nothing special about this water. We're going to pull it from our well. It's nasty. <laughs> this is not holy water. It was ridiculously cold until Alicia and Mimi boiled a bunch of pots of water and warmed it up for you, Hunter. I told him he's 19. Let him deal with it. <laughs> Luckily... There's compassion in this church. <laughs> we also fished out the flies. <laughs> it's a fight. Just because you, you get baptized and you give your life to the Lord, Chris and Rebecca are here, have brand new Bibles in their hands. We baptized them like two and a half years ago. They, if I brought them up here and gave, had them give a testimony, they would say, hey, we gave, we gave our life to the Lord and things almost got worse. <laughs> you know why? Because there's an enemy that prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You decide your men, men who went with us on the, on the retreat, you say, I'm going to give my whole being into this life of following Jesus. This is incredible. I've been around a lot of men. Uh, I've been encouraged. I've been empowered. I've been instructed. I'm going to go home. I'm going to apply this. How many of you came home and you fought with your wife or your hot water heater broke or something bad happened at work? You think this is just coincidence? You decide, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start making family devotions part of what we do. After dinner, we're going to grab 10 minutes, three times a week, 30 minutes. Shouldn't be a big deal. We're going to apply that to our life. We're going to study the scriptures. We're going to pray a little bit. And then all of a sudden, soccer practices. And, and, uh, and, and if you're Mark Shevlin, your kitchen catches on fire. And, and everything that bad that could happen does happen. Think that's just by chance? Think the enemy wants you to be a godly man and lead your family? Shouldn't surprise us. And if you don't realize this, you're going to get frustrated and discouraged when you fail. And you will fail. I know church is supposed to be happy, happy, rah, rah, but you are going to fail. You might even fail today. You might even fail before you get in your car. And if you're not careful, you will think that you just don't have enough willpower for self-discipline. I don't have enough willpower for joy. I don't have enough willpower to be patient. All these fruits of the Spirit, they might be for someone else, but man, I'm just not good enough. I can't apply those. When that's not the issue. Willpower is not the issue. Listen, for most of us, the problem isn't laziness. For some of you, it is. And if it is, embrace that. Receive that. Don't get mad at me for calling you lazy. But for, for a lot of you, it's not laziness. You aren't lazy. And it's not a matter of willpower. There's a spiritual battle. We learn in Galatians. There's a devil that wants to devour you. And he does all he can to derail your spiritual growth. And he orchestrates all of those urgent things that press in on you and distract you. 
Friends, we need to take the Bible's image of warfare to heart. Psalm 144, verse 1, he trains my hands for battle. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. With the power of the Spirit, you can bend a bow of bronze. Without the Spirit, unless, of course, maybe you're Chris, (laughs) whose arms are like huge, you can't. In other words, you can't fight the temptation. You can't fight the war. You can't fight the sin. You can try as you may. You can do whatever you can. You will fail. So make use of your weapons to grow in the fruit of the Spirit. But it's going to take work. Why? War is exhausting. If you've ever been into a fight, you know, we we watch movies and a fight lasts like 25 minutes. If you've ever been in a fight after 30 seconds, you're like, all right, you win. Like, it's exhausting. War is exhausting. And for some of you, you've been fighting the war of sin for 50 years. You've been fighting the war for 20 years. You've been fighting your purity for how long? Or your critical heart for how long? And you're tired. It's going to take work. Preacher Ravi Zacharias, love this guy, said this, unless he prayed before he went to bed, Lord, wake me up in the morning with an eagerness to meet you in the word. He said, unless he prayed that, then he could not get up and read the Bible. Seeking God doesn't come naturally. It's how we're wired, but that wire has been broken. Read the pages of the Bible from start to finish. You will see there is a natural tendency to want God, but boy, are we so easily detoured. But we have a tool that can help the Bible. And we need to make use of the scriptures to keep going. If we're going to gain self-control over the tongue, it's not enough to appeal to our own willpower. You must find scripture to strengthen you in that. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Do not let any wholesome talk come out of your mouths, but what only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. That may benefit those who listen. Or if it's money, you don't just decide I'm going to have self-will over money. I'm just going to not spend anymore. I'm going to cut up those credit cards. You can cut them up all day. You can get a new one tomorrow. Go to Kohl's. They'll give you that. They'll give credit card, Kohl's credit card to anybody. They even have their own cash, (laughs) which at first I thought was amazing. And then it just ropes you in, and then you have a huge bill. I do like Kohl's, just in case any of you work there. I get all my Converse at Kohl's. Okay. (laughs) If it's money... It's not just, I'm not going to spend today. It's 1 Timothy 6, 6. It's, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. It's not enough just to have self-control on all these different issues. It's grabbing the armor and the sword of the word of God and then applying it in that situation. Do you realize you have a weapon accessible to you to fight? 
Or do you still see yourself as a victim? Are you working with God to cultivate this fruit of the Spirit, self-control? You need to cultivate this fruit, otherwise you will be pulled to your sinful flesh. But it's not about the power within you. It's not about you pulling your boots up higher and strapping them on tighter and giving it the old college try. It's the grace of God. It's knowing that grace. And then it's applying it in practice. And we do that in the context of spiritual warfare. I'll close with this. Without the gift and practice of, of self-control, we're at the mercy of our sinful hearts. I don't know your sinful heart. Probably a good thing. You don't know my sinful heart, but there isn't a single person in this room or listening or watching online that doesn't have a sinful heart. And if you don't cultivate with God's presence these fruits of the Spirit, you're at the mercy of that heart. Self-control is grace. Grace, if you would, kind of like a, a baker needed into the thread and fabric of your being. And when we experience that love and that grace for the first time, we respond. We say, yes, Lord. And you get to see that in action. So I'm gonna invite my friend Hunter up here. Would you give him a round of applause?